The main problem with the BMI is not that it sometimes thinks thin people are fat. The main problem with the BMI is that trans people who exceed a certain BMI can't get life-saving, gender-affirming care. The main problem with the BMI is that because they are concerned with liability, there are surgeons who will not operate on fat people and require them to lose tens or hundreds of pounds before they can access X, Y, or Z surgical procedure that they desperately need. But magically, they absolutely can manage surgery when it's weight loss surgery. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet, culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soule-Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. I have recorded this intro like six times because I get way too gushy every time. Today, I am so excited to be talking to Aubrey Gordon. If you don't know Aubrey, she is the co-host of the Maintenance Phase podcast. She is also the author of What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. And her brand new book, which is out this week, Run, Don't Walk to Get It, is called You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. I'm going to let us just get right into it because Aubrey is awesome and this conversation is a total delight. So here's Aubrey. Okay, so I am looking at your childhood scale. Yeah, you sure are. I am in Los Angeles. I come down here for a good chunk of time at the end of each year. Since I started freelancing, I was like, I would like to spend more time with my family. Yeah, sure. So I do. Lovely. And the one place that I can record while I'm down here, which is a big part of my job, is recording right. audio. It is. <laughs> is, you know, it's Los Angeles. It's the second largest city in the country. Hard to find a truly silent place. Mm -hmm. So I'm inside my mother's closet, which just works on a number of levels, yes? <laughs> um, and one of the things that she stores in her closet is... The scale that we had in my childhood, it's one of those, like, if you went to a doctor's office in the 70s, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's not a small digital scale. I want people to have a clear visual. It's it's the tall. <laughs> it has the weights that slide back and forth. It's a full-on doctor's office scale. Your that, journalistic integrity is really shining. Yeah, I here. just, like, I want to capture the details for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, this was the scale your family had in your house. Uh-huh, absolutely. <laughs> I also have the question of why do we still own the scale? Here's what I suspect. I don't know how, she's told me she only uses it like a few times a year. And she's yeah. like, I don't know. She's the person who doesn't like things to go to waste. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it is true. What do you do with a scale if you want to get rid of it? Like, totally. How, how do you not and, waste it? <laughs> and also, at this point, not only does she have, you know, not a lot of people looking for scales at this particular moment, but also not a lot of people looking for big, heavy, loud scales mm -hmm. from 50 years ago. It would be hard to give away even on like the free cycle page. Yeah. Uh, I was telling her, I was like, you should take it to like a scrap metal place yeah. or to like an artist of some kind, like a welder could do some interesting sure, sure. things. Yeah. I don't think any of that's going to happen. No, anyway, but in the meantime. stay in the closet there and you're going to see it every year. Yeah. It's the Just greatest little... icebreaker to every <laughs> interview I have. <laughs> it's like very off brand and somehow on brand also. I don't know. Extraordinarily. <laughs> yes. It is the absolute <laughs> nexus of things I stand against and things I spend all of my time on. <laughs> and stand next to you while <laughs> doing your work. But not stand on anymore. Yeah. yeah. Not anymore. <laughs> I know. I was really, I was like. I get to show this to Virginia today, and that feels like a win to me. Do you know what I mean? Like, what a treat. How are you doing? You are a couple weeks out from book launch. How are you feeling? How's it, how's it going? I mean, you know, like, anytime you make a big thing, and then there's like a year between when you make it and when people get to experience it. The worst. That's a year of like always feeling a little bit like you're about to barf, yeah. you know? Just a tiny bit. Just yep. always like a low-grade barf energy. Yep. yep. So I'm in the thick of that. Mm -hmm. I'm at the, you know, I'm at the crescendo part of the barf energy. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> but also like, you know, it's fine and great. And I get to, like, talk to a bunch of fun people who I like talking to. And yeah. it gives me an excuse to do that. Like, great. That's Thumbs awesome. Thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? You're how many months out now? We You're are four months, yeah, sort of mid-barf. Mid it's a, end of April. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, like, haven't reached peak nausea, but low-level, constant background noise hum barf, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, yeah, totally. 
Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm getting second pass back this week, which I think is the last time I get eyes on it. But we're also like, you know, it's the week before getting, we're going on a big trip for the holidays. So I'm like completely mm-hmm. not in work mode. I'm trying to like pack my kids up for this big trip. And I'm like, it's mm-hmm. I have to read the freaking book again. I don't want to read it again. Yeah, <laughs> You totally. know that, you know, that phase where you're just like, I can't look at it anymore. But also what if I don't look at it enough and then something terrible goes, yeah. you know, yep. so. One hundred percent. That's cool. Well, um, and yeah. here's the other thing: even if you look at it seven times, you're gonna catch oh. something at some point. Yeah, yeah, and feel bad about it because it's forever now. Like I don't pick up my first book anymore because I know if I pick it up, I will find something and just be like, "Why didn't we catch that typo? Or why didn't you know?" Like, yeah, totally. Yeah, That's you smart just of you. Can't look back at it at a certain point. That's really smart of you. (laughs) (laughs) It'll just, it is what it is. The whole pre-book launch phase, it's a very weird phase. It's like this liminal state you're in. But I'm so excited for you because you're you're close to it being being out, it being a thing. It's happening. It's happening at this point, whether I'm barfing or not, it's happening. (laughs) (laughs) With me barfing along for the ride. (laughs) Yeah. And you too. I'm so excited. So the front end of this week for me is like a ton of interviews. And the back end of this week is spend a couple days with your new book. And I'm like over the moon about it. I'm so excited. You're the best. You're the best. Really appreciate you fitting that in because I know. Oh my god! Of course. But I know how busy it is in these weeks right before the book comes out. Like I felt awful even asking. No. Being like she has so much going no. on. Listen, this is one of those things where I'm like, this needs to be out in the world. This is the kind of thing that the world like very desperately needs <sighs> right now. Yeah. Because I don't know how you feel about this, but I would say as you know, if we're doing like generational location, mm-hmm. as a elder millennial, Mm -hmm. child of a boomer. Mm -hmm. Most of my peers who have kids at this point, who are also elder millennial children of boomers, Mm -hmm. are in this space of being acutely aware that their upbringing around bodies was fucked. (laughs) (laughs) It was a hot mess. It was bad news. And they're like, so it can't be that. But also, I don't know what else to do. Exactly. Exactly. And I feel like this is the kind of like gift of a set of tools. That's my hope. And a yeah. sort of like an analysis for folks to go, you're not just rejecting one lens, yes. right? You're applying yes. a new one. Here's the new one. What I will just say is the thing that I think about the most is like people, there's this instinct, and I think this happens across the board. Once you start to see diet culture, once you start to mm-hmm. name anti-fat bias, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to kids, you now want to protect them from it so much. Mm-hmm. And that can lead to this all or nothing thinking that feels familiar in a bad way. Like people are like, mm-hmm. how do I get the schools to stop this? How do I, you know, what media can my kid watch that won't be fat phobic? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I mean, none of the children's shows. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, are you just totally. not going to show them a cartoon? So totally. it's really about like, how do we give kids these tools too? How do we normalize yeah. these conversations? How do we change the language in our household? So fat is just a word that we're using all the time and not this loaded concept. And I think that's, you know, because we can't put them in these bubbles and protect, you know, and be perfect in our anti-fatness, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, and like, I think this like goes squarely under the header of like, kind of feel like everything we do in the system that we're currently in and the culture that we're currently in is some measure of harm reduction. Right. So like thinking about things through that lens and not through the lens of like, I'm going to somehow create a perfect bubble in which my kids will not be exposed to any of the like harmful forces that exist out in the world. Right. Is not reasonable. And I feel like most parents I know on most fronts have gotten there. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I've just figured out like, you know, we're in a messy world with a lot of messy stuff and you're going to be in control of some of it and totally out of control of others of it. And I think that that can be a harder thing for folks to come to terms with around anti-fatness and bodies. Well, and I think it just comes from that diet culture mentality of like, if Mm. I do X, Y, and Z, right, if I follow these rules, you know, then it'll Mm. all be okay. And we're just applying that in a new way, you know, so it just gets very totally and like have to realize like that's, this is not something that there's five easy steps for, you know, (laughs) there was never anything there was five easy steps for, but for sure not this. Absolutely. And that gives us a great segue to your new book because (laughs) I think what is so exquisite about it is how 
it helps us start to do this work and ask ourselves these really hard, painful, you know, difficult questions. But also, you know, there's just this clear recognition in the book of like, the work is not ever going to be done, but we are going to keep doing the work. I appreciate that. That's like the goal, right? Is like, everything's a mess. (laughs) Everything's a mess and everything's really hard. (laughs) And it's easy to get overwhelmed by how much mess there is and Mm -hmm. be like, it'll never get cleaned up. We can't do anything. We can't have nice things, whatever. Right. Right. And, you know, I had a conversation to this effect the other day with a health and wellness reporter who was having a real galaxy brain moment around Mm -hmm. like, Uh, I've never had a fat editor. I don't think I've ever worked with another health and wellness reporter who was a fat person. We use the language like in our internal style guides. We use language of overweight and obesity with specific guidance around that Mm -hmm. being less hurtful to fat people. And I don't think that's true anymore. And blah, blah, blah. And like was just getting more and more overwhelmed. And it felt like a little microcosm of what I see a lot of folks doing Mm -hmm. when exposed to sort of this set of information, which is just like so much overwhelm. And that turns into a sort of barrier to taking action. Where do I even begin to scale the mountain? Totally. And like, it's all going to be messed up. All of our actions are going to be imperfect, but we Mm -hmm. are not living in a world where like too many people are trying too many things (laughs) to defend fat people. (laughs) Right? Like that's not the world that we're in. Yeah. This is a place where, listen, there are many issues, there are many communities where you can try things and there's a pretty good body of like writing and thinking and research about like why those things may or may not be super helpful. Mm-hmm. On anti-fatness, there is a lot less research and there is a lot less of a track record of people trying things and mm-hmm. not having those things work out. Right. I think for me as a fat person, like the best thing somebody can do is try something. Even if it's wrong, the distinguishing thing at this point in my life as a fat person is people who try something and people who don't do anything. Because the people who don't do anything, I cannot distinguish from people who are like dead set anti-fat people, right? The action is the distinguishing mark. Yes, completely. Uh, And it's the thing that like gets us on a road to somewhere. Yeah, we can then start (laughs) to evaluate what's helpful and what's not helpful because we will be trying things. uh, Totally. to not doing anything and sort of accepting this entrenched place. When you're talking about the sort of less body of research and all of that, you know, that we are also seeing that what does work for other forms of bias doesn't seem to work as well here and Mm -hmm. trying to understand why that is. Absolutely. Your conversation with Jeff Hunger about this was like top notch on that front. Top notch. Jeff is awesome. His work is so helpful. He's so great. And... You know, we're also like at a different point in this movement than we are in other movements, yes. right? And I think it's worth noting, like, how far have we come? What have we been working on? And how are the sort of contours of this issue different than the contours of other issues, right? I feel like we skipped over the part where I should ask you to tell people what the book is and what it's about <laughs> and what inspired it. So how about we do that real quick? <laughs> Great. Let's do it. So this is my second book, and it's called You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. And it came in part from a proposal from my publisher who has a a series of books on sort of myth busting. They've got books on immigrant communities. They've got books on unions. They've got books on a number of sort of communities and issues that have been sort of willfully misunderstood, we'll say, Mm -hmm. that are sort of focused on this kind of myth busting thing. and. I will be honest that, which is a weird thing for me to say, given the show that I co-host and the book that I am putting out now, I have sort of a weird conflicted relationship to myth busting because mm-hmm. I think we think it does more to change people's minds than it does. Mm-hmm. It's predicated on this like very enlightenment era sort of idea that like if we're presented with facts, we change our minds. And I'm like, no, we now have like hundreds of years of evidence yeah. that that's not the case. <laughs> People just dig in deeper on what they believe. Totally. But at the same time, we've got more and more folks who are in that sort of galaxy brain, I can't do anything mode. Mm -hmm. And it felt really important to have something, to have a tool for those folks to be able to feel grounded enough in their own sense of facts and history and all of these sorts of things to feel like they can handle what comes their way. Mm -hmm. When they do what they already know how to do, which is 
We already kind of know how to get our parents to move off of outdated language. Right. We already kind of know how to get our friends to knock it off when they're saying unhelpful things, right? Like, these are all things that we know through our own relationships. Mm -hmm. And the barrier is more people feeling grounded and confident enough to say the things that they know how to say and do the things that they know how to do and work that change process with the people and institutions in their lives, right? Yes. And this felt like an important tool for those folks. So it's not necessarily like it could be for your jerky uncle who won't leave people alone about his like fitness routine or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it could also be for you, the person who knows the jerky uncle with with the fitness routine to like sort of figure out what your way in is there. That's what I kept thinking about reading it. You and I like think and work on these issues quite a lot, some Uh might say, um, Uh (laughs) obsessively. And yet there are still moments where, you know, I'm in a store and they don't have my size and I just sort of freeze and don't know what to do. And the vulnerability takes over, right? And I just thought reading this, it's like this is something you can come back to. If you have Mm. one of those experiences, you can come back to this and be like, these are my values. This is what I understand. Even if in the moment of facing the other thing, you kind of become untethered from that. This is a way of like retethering yourself. And it's just it's such a gift that way. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, my my hope would certainly be like you go to the doctor's office, you get your after visit summary and it has your BMI in big bold letters mm-hmm. or your kid's BMI or your partner's BMI or whatever. You can come back and hopefully read this chapter on the BMI and go, oh, right. Oh, right. It's nonsense. (laughs) I will now light this on fire. Correct. (laughs) Oh, right. I shouldn't feel sad and ashamed about this. I should feel angry and indignant. (laughs) Right. Oh, I'm so glad that you experienced it that way. How did you narrow it down to just 20 myths, though? So the initial list, I think, was like 36. I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) But a bunch of them sort of collapse into one another. Mm -hmm. Like I had a bunch of separate ones that were like, fat people are the biggest drivers of healthcare costs or X number of fat people die every year Mm -hmm. for just because they're fat and they just drop dead. That's how science works, apparently. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) great. Good. Yes. And I had one about like the obesity epidemic and sort of the construction of the obesity epidemic. As it turns out, you can tell that last story and it will get you to mm-hmm. all of the other stuff along the way. They're all recurring characters in each other's nightmares. Totally, totally. <laughs> so to me, it felt more important to get to all of the information, whether or not there was a chapter title for it. And also, mm-hmm. like, listen, if you do the healthcare costs one or whatever, that's like two pages. That's right. not much of a chapter. Right. Right. That's a leaflet. So I think it was much more of sort of like mm, figuring out how to use, like choose some like mother myths, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And figure out what the little tributaries were to those mother myths and figure out how to get to them through the existing ones. I was just Mm. thinking about the planning of this book and thinking there was probably a beautiful mind moment of like, where does it all go? (laughs) I definitely have like a, an obsessive amateur investigators, like bulletin board covered in red string at my house somewhere. How about you? Talk to me about the structure of your, like, how did you land on your own sort of, because again, like parenting and fatness and body image is like, It was also beautiful, mindy, for sure. Yeah. What I wanted to do in the first chunk of the book was deal with the, quote, childhood obesity epidemic. Because what I find so often is that, you know, even if adults are starting to question BMI and they're starting to sort of grasp it about adults, there's something about, but the children. Yeah, totally. That's like this third rail where it's like, okay, but you can't argue with childhood obesity not being terrible, right? We still have to be terrible to children, right. yes? Like, exactly. It's really one of those ones that like, you can totally get where people are coming from when they say it. And also, if you spend like 15 seconds yes. on it, you're like, yes. oh, no. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I felt like we need to start there with this, like, because that's the sort of core terror that parents are mm. carrying around is the mm-hmm. like, but, but my child, you know, like yeah. it's so easy to play on parental fears for children's health, well-being, happiness, et cetera, et cetera. And that's like the first manipulation that's happening. And then the way I structured the rest of the book was to think about where are the instances in family life where mm. fat phobia really lives and shows up. Mm. And so it's the dinner table. It's your kid's Mm -hmm. classroom. 
It's mm. coaches and kids sports, puberty, social media, you know, so these different arenas. And so the rest of the book kind of marches through these different places and like, what does it look like? What is it coming up in the parents? You know, what are your things coming up? What are your kids getting from other people, from the teachers, the coaches, well-meaning, hardworking people? I don't want to ever sound like compassion teachers, but totally, totally. schools also, are a hotbed yeah. of anti-fat bias. That structure came together really nicely because those are the questions I get from readers and podcast listeners, which I'm sure was sort of similar for you of like, these are the things that come up over and over where it's like, we need to be able to tackle this. Absolutely. And I would say for me, and I'm curious about this for you, that I think there are a number of things that people say thinking that they are drawing an allegiance Mm -hmm. to a movement and might not be sort of recognizing that those things might be undercutting the movement. Yes. You have some really good myths about that in the book. And I would imagine there's some of that for you too, right? That there are lots of parents who like really think they've hit on the thing and you're sort of like, ooh, almost. The number one example is parents who email me outraged that the pediatrician is upset about their child's BMI. Oh, because, because they're not, quote, not that fat? Not that fat. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> yep, yep. And you're like, no. No, it's almost there. No, but no. that's not the, oh, so close, <laughs> yeah. but also really far. Really far. Now reinforcing <laughs> yeah. the whole problem. Now yeah. you're just going, my kid shouldn't be treated like this because that behavior should be reserved for the fat kids. And right. my kid isn't one of them, right? right? Which is like, not what people mean to say when they're saying no. it, but is the sort of unintended underpinning of that. And they'll even come with like, of course, nobody should be treated this way. But yeah. like, also my kid's thin. But it's extra galling when right. they're definitely not fat. <laughs> Like, guys, no. It's just There's a similar thing with the BMI where people will do the, like, I'm sure you've seen this one million times, where people will do the, like, here's a picture of me clearly socially defined as a thin Mm. person. Mm -hmm. The BMI thinks I'm fat. Mm -hmm. That's how you know you can't use it. And I'm like, that's not the biggest problem. Right. It's really not. Shaquille O'Neal's BMI is hurting nobody. Like, that's not the Yeah, The the Rock. It's fine. We can all talk about The Rock being muscular and then the BMI thinks he's fat. Whoa. And also, uh, that is a a real third rail to the whole thing. That is definitely one of those moments where I think people don't realize what that Mm. they're articulating their bias so clearly. And it's hard to figure out how to like reflect it back. I mean, in a direct conversation, that doesn't always work. But you did a great job with that. And I'm looking at my notes now. Myth 14. (laughs) I don't like gaining weight, but I don't treat Uh, fat people differently. That one's a tricky one because... People are trying to draw this line sort of a, sort of vaguely around the idea of body autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. That this should actually be my choice, that I get to do what I'm going to do, and that doesn't mean anything about anyone else, and my choice should be respected, which is all true, right? Mm-hmm. All of that is true. You should totally be able to do whatever you want and see fit with your body, absolutely. And also... Because our brains are actually not that sophisticated to be yeah. like, I only believe this about me, but no one else in any other context ever right. is like, there is enough research and knowledge about implicit bias out in the world to know that that's not what that's we're not, doing, guys. Yeah, that's not um, what we're doing. And you didn't come up with your opinion about your own body in a vacuum with no influences from anybody else. 100%, right? Like, your idea that you need to be thinner also didn't come from nowhere, right? right? And here's where it gets really, really tricky. There is some data and some academic tools that actually use one's own beliefs about one's own weight loss as a metric for and as an indicator for how much anti-fat bias that person will have. If you believe fundamentally that weight is manipulable and people can control their weight across the board, including yourself, you are more likely to see fat people as failing to manipulate their own weight, Mm, right? Which is like, that's a tricky, like, both you're right and also, that's not the whole picture. I think in all these conversations about implicit bias sort of across the board, the one thing, if nothing else, the one thing that that should illustrate to all of us is that we are bad judges of our own biases. So part of the logic that that one plays into is, I didn't mean to hurt you, so I can't have hurt you, Mm -hmm. right? Which cuts off any kind of continued relationship Mm -hmm. building, 
It cuts off any kind of accountability and like changing course, right? It cuts off all kinds of things because it says that my intentions matter more than anything that you might have experienced as a result of what I consider just to be my own good and pure intentions. Again, it's tricky. I don't expect anyone to have escaped that completely. We live in a world that makes that impossible. Right, right, right. But I do think it's an important thing to acknowledge that when we are pursuing weight loss, we are feeding ourselves a series of messages about what it means to lose weight, what it means to be a thin person and what Mm -hmm. it means to be a fat person. Those messages are also being fed to us by weight loss compliments from Mm -hmm. friends and family. Those messages are being fed to us by people who say, I was really worried about you before or you looked really rough before Mm -hmm. and now you look great, right? Like the idea that we could step outside of that constant stream and go, but I'm making this decision only for myself and nothing totally else is influencing it. Yes. Yeah, totally. You know, it's like just not really wow. the world we live in, right? I would love it if it were, but it's not. I mean, I think we see that so much in healthcare as well. This yeah. reluctance across, I shouldn't say across the board because there are lots of doctors who are trying to do this work. But there is this real reluctance to because the do no harm oath lives so large, I think, in that mm. culture that they're like, but I, I don't mean to be biased against people. I have their yeah. their health, you know, the best intentions about their health or whatever. And then it's like we hit this brick wall where we can't help them see that the harm is happening. And it's yeah. it's just a fascinating thing the way that plays out. It is really fascinating. It's been really fascinating. I wonder if you have encountered this much at all. I think particularly through maintenance phase, this has come up more and more, that the number of healthcare providers, and particularly MDs, which feels like a notoriously tricky mm. pocket of healthcare providers to Agreed. get to, Agreed. the number of folks who have written in and gone, all of my training was to do this. Like for days and days and days on end, I was instructed and evaluated based on, do I tell the fat patient they're fat? Mm -hmm. And now you're telling me I shouldn't be doing that. And now Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It feels really indicative to me of how few folks are getting meaningful feedback, are positioned in such a way and encouraged to take that feedback, and how few people have gotten an invitation into this conversation through any other mode than direct feedback from someone mm-hmm. who has been harmed by their actions, which is a rough entry point for anybody. Right, right. right? And then like, you're immediately on the defensive. It has felt really striking to me how many folks are just like, oh, I've just genuinely never thought of this before. Mm-hmm. And that part feels both disheartening and heartening in a weird way. Yeah, because <laughs> they know? are thinking about it now. Totally. I've been hearing from a lot of medical students lately, which is very exciting to me. Same, same. Yeah. Thrilling. Like, Thrilling. good job, med students. <laughs> yeah, good totally. Job. Like, that's really cool. That gives yeah. me a lot of hope to think the new generation of doctors, you know, is grappling with this in a way that, you know, the current people you can see are likely not always. Yeah, for sure. I had another experience like this recently. I was posting about how I'd I'd posted a coat I'd found. I was really excited. J. Crew had gone up to a three X in this coat. Ooh. Obviously not far enough, but it was you know like it was encouraging from a brand like mm-hmm. J. Crew. And then after we linked to the quote in the newsletter, we got all these emails from readers being like, "No, it's only going up to an XL." They'd erased the sizes, like they were just gone from the website. What? I know. And it was literally like, Corinne put the link in on Wednesday. I double-checked it on Wednesday. The podcast dropped on Thursday and the coats were gone. Like, what? (laughs) What is that? Maddening. And so I was talking about this on Instagram and this person DM'd me and were like, they were saying, well, probably the coats just sold out. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, you know... If that was the case, the sizes would still be listed because I can see like the medium yeah. is sold out and the M is still there with a little line through it. And these yeah. sizes are just gone. And she was like, well, I just think you're reading into it. I'm like, I'm reading into the sizes being erased. And she was like, well, I work in retail. I don't work for J. Crew, but I work in corporate retail. And I think usually when that happens, it's because, you know, the size order has been sold out. And, the you know, the brand's probably really excited it sold so well. I'm like, so excited that they're no longer identifying it on the website. They're doing a great way of showing that excitement. <laughs> they're overjoyed yeah. with their total lack of fat models <sighs> and the fact you no longer see a plus size section on J. Crew. It was there for like five minutes. So now it's gone. Yeah. And it just, it was a fascinating conversation where I was like, oh, you 
received this articulation of harm, which wasn't even about you. I mean, I don't know what brand they work for, but I wasn't talking about their brand. Yeah. But immediately went to this place of that people are so defensive. You're looking for us to be the bad guys. Like, that's not what's happening here, you know? And like, you're yeah. misreading this situation. Yeah, totally. And I think part of the thing that starts the catalyst of that response is being a fat person raising this issue. So I would say particularly for folks who are not perceived as fat people, regardless of how you feel about your own body, if you're able to go into any store and buy clothes, congratulations, <laughs> you have some measure of thin privilege. Right. Right. And this is one of those conversations that would go potentially fundamentally differently mm -hmm. if a thin person had that conversation. Because I think one of the hard things about all this stuff is I think about this often is I'm like, oh, man, you are just seeing my fatness and me saying as a fat person, mm -hmm. anything mm -hmm. like what a, fill in the blank for whatever. As a fat person, I like lemon meringue pie. As a fat person, I didn't sleep very well last night. Whatever. doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. All of those things, right, are registering as you're clenching up in anticipation of some kind of negative mm -hmm. feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than opening yourself up to, I wonder what comes next, or I'll wait for this sentence to end before, <laughs> before I figure I out how I jump feel. to a conclusion or whatever. Right? Oh, it's a tricky one. This is making me think of a question I just got from a mom that I would mm. love your input on. She's fat. Her daughter is currently straight sized and struggling with some, you know, teenage body stuff. And mm. she said, "I feel like my input." isn't landing because she's looking at me and being like, well, you're fat, you know? Yeah, totally. And so, like, it was like a credibility issue. Yeah, and what do I do about God. that? And that is, you know, there's probably, like, some truth to that. If her daughter is thinking that thinness feels really important right now, trying to fit in in eighth grade or whatever, yeah. you know, thinness matters so much, your fat mom's perspective doesn't hold so much water because— she has, quote, failed to achieve the thing that you that feels so crucial to you. And so, yeah. you know, I had empathy for both of them, but it's one I've been thinking about. I love your thoughts. Yeah, it's tough. It's such a tough one because then what do you do? Like, what do you do if you, as mom, are not a credible messenger right. in your own parenting? Like, right. that is a tough one. Well, yeah. God, yeah. I also have empathy for both of them. And particularly that mom's position feels like a real gray eyed Athena kind of yeah. moment of just yeah. like, oh, you know, everything that's about to happen. Yeah. And the, you know that yes. you can't really intervene in the ways that you would hope right. or with the effectiveness that you would hope. God, that's a rough one. I do think we have research showing that like parents influence teenagers, even when teenagers are not appearing to accept our thoughts or feeling, you know, you do have more influence than it looks like you have in the moment. I mean, I see this even as a parent of a nine-year-old who's often going on 13, that yeah. it appears that I am having no impact and am the most mortifying person in the world. Yeah. But actually, I see through other actions that she craves my approval and trust me and that we have this like strong bond. So yeah. I think I would hope that there's that in play, that it may look like a rejection right now, but it ultimately won't be. Yeah. And that it still feels really important for you to be modeling that you can be a fat person who's good with their body, who's, you know, or even if, you know, you don't feel good with your body, that you can be modeling. I am worthy of respect and dignity and all of these yeah. things yeah. because she may not always be thin. Like these things, you know, she needs to have that even if it doesn't in the moment yeah. connect. It's going to matter later on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, God. Boy, that one's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. just keep coming back to, boy, that's a tough one. A just emotionally, like, even if you do everything in your control, even if you whatever, just emotionally. That's just yeah. an emotionally tough position. To well, be it's in. a rejection from your kid, which just sucks. Totally. Sucks. Yeah. Totally. Very, you know, and kids are good at figuring out how to reject us. And part of that is developmentally appropriate. They're supposed to be separating. Yeah. And, but when it's over something like this, and it's that, you know, it's, it's like the fear you're going to raise a conservative. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. totally. Like, these are really important core values that I want my child to be living. I mean, I'll say this. There's a thing that my sister-in-law in particular does with her kids that I enjoy immensely, which is 
when they start doing the kid thing of like, don't be like this and mm-hmm. don't show up in this way. And could you not wear like bright colors? And could you <laughs> yes. not make too many sounds? And could you just kind of figure out how to disappear into the background? <laughs> and could you da, 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 da. She goes hard in the other direction. Nice. And is like, oh, do you want me to wear this? What if I put on glittery eyeshadow? What if I showed up with a kettle drum and just started beating it going, I'm there, mom. Here I am. Like, <laughs> it's both really fun and that's how she engages with the world anyway, mm-hmm. right? Like that's true to who she is. But also I think there's really something to go to the source of the anxiety and be like, sorry, is this really what you're afraid yeah. of? Yeah, yeah. Is this really like, that? And yeah. from me? Really? Yeah. Like, yeah. I had one with my niece at one point wanted me to watch her debate tournament, which was the most fun thing I have done in a really long time. It was on Zoom during the pandemic. And she was like, your camera needs to be off. Your name needs, you could probably just put in like a different name. It can't be a picture of you. It can't be a blah, blah, blah. Like it was like all of these things. And I was like, oh man, I'm so sorry. Because I was really planning to show up in a leopard print sweater that just says Rita's proud aunt <laughs> just like just yell good job sweetie every time you said anything like, I love and it. I like I think there's some use to that kind of stuff too depending on the tone of the conversation but it like gives people a way out yeah. and it allows them to see sometimes the kind of outlandishness of their particular fears, you know? It's also saying to a kid in this situation is you can't really reject me, right? Like you can reject me, still your mom, still love you, still showing up for you, still here, my fat body being your mom. Like, you know, and that is really powerful. Again, maybe not right now, but, you know, when I compare that to the stories I hear from readers who are looking back on parents who were ashamed of them, parents who were, you know, correcting and controlling them. You know, there's a great line. This is from myth number four, everybody. (laughs) Taking your notes for the book. Um, Oh, I made lots of notes when I read it. (laughs) This was myth four, thin people should help fat people lose weight. And I really loved and underlined this line. I love you doesn't ring so true when it's followed by I just want to fix you. I don't think you were talking about parenting at that point, but that absolutely connects to parenting in a huge way. For sure. I did um, sort of policy change and community organizing for a long time before starting the work that I do now. And one of those campaigns was um, to ban so-called reparative therapy, Mm -hmm. um, ex-gay and ex-trans therapy uh, in Oregon, which we were successful in doing, which is amazing. And part of my job was to recruit witnesses and people who could testify about the impact of ex-gay and ex-trans therapy on their lives or on their kids' lives. And the thing that really stood out to me in that prep, like, I'm a gay person. Those were really hard testimony preps to do. And I think the thing that stayed with me the most and that feels like a lesson to transfer here Mm -hmm. is that 100% of the parents who signed their kids up for conversion therapy thought they were doing the best thing for their kid. Yeah. And I think it's like one of those like really hard, really human things of we can think we're doing the rightest thing and still, you know, cause harmful outcomes or still not know the whole picture yet or still not be far along enough in our own sort of political education Mm -hmm. on an experience or an issue or a community to know how to make the right decision. And I think just approaching all of this with enough humility and enough willingness to mess up along the way because it feels like really essential because even if we don't think we're messing up, we're definitely messing up. <laughs> like that's happening all the time, whether or not we mean to, yes. right? <laughs> Just to so, that. so being able to start from the place of, I might mess this up, but I'm going to do something anyway, mm-hmm. feels really, really essential to all of this. Yeah. Within and beyond, like in parenting world and also just like as a human. It's that balance of try something and be open to the feedback that what you're trying is not working. Like, that's the combination we really need here. Absolutely. Versus try something, be sure it's right, despite the fact someone's telling you it was harmful because you didn't want it to be harmful. For sure. For parents that I've spoken to who don't want their kids to be fat, when they talk about what they're afraid of, they're afraid of social experiences of exclusion. Those are not fixed by 
not having a kind of privilege and then having that kind of privilege, Mm -hmm. in my own experience with weight loss and weight gain, that makes it emotionally a lot harder Mm -hmm. to see what is available to you but is Mm -hmm. being denied to you when you are fat Yeah, is a genuine heartbreaker. Yeah. And I think it's worth flagging that too, right? That yeah. like when your answer to the BMI is messed up because it thinks my thin kid is fat or I'm afraid if my kid gets fatter, they're going to be treated in X and such way. The external conditions remain the same. You're just getting them temporary shelter <laughs> in right. the bus shelter of thinness. Right. You're getting them temporary the shelter. shelter. Right. I love that. <laughs> You're not giving them any tools to actually navigate through it. You're just saying... The only solution is to make yourself like what they want. I mean, that's totally you will probably become fat at some point in your life or at least gain weight. And that Mm -hmm. will feel like a personal failure to you. And you will see all of this slip away and you will blame yourself Mm -hmm. for not sort of managing your own thinness appropriately. Right. Like, again, it comes from a good place of wanting your kid to be okay and to be treated well in the world. And I would argue that the answer to that isn't to spare them from the social context, but to fix the social context. So that even if your kid is a thin kid who's perceived as fat by the BMI, or even if your kid is afraid of getting fatter or whatever, the best thing you can do in all of those cases is make the world a safer and more dignified and more respectful place for fat people. And let your kids and loved ones and colleagues and friends and neighbors all see you doing that, right? Like, that's where the thing really, that's where we start cooking with gas. You know what I mean? That's where we really start going for it. The sort of last thing I wanted to be sure to ask you about, because Mm. I think these will be helpful things for my audience to be thinking about. In the book and also on social, you've been talking a lot about the distinctions between diet culture Mm. and anti-fat bias. Mm. And, you know, also Myth 11 is about body positivity and that very footnoted version of you can feel better about yourself as long as you're happy and healthy. Yeah. And I think there's some really useful stuff we should talk about there because I think so many people, the starting point is body positivity. The starting point yep. is recognizing diet culture. Yep. And we need to articulate why that does not go far enough. Yeah, totally. I think whatever your starting point is, awesome. Welcome. Come on down. So happy to have you. Uh, and I think it's important in any movement, in any issue, in any struggle to make sure that your starting point is not also your ending point. Hooray. Right. <laughs> right. So first things first, on this, body positivity is for anyone as long as you're happy and healthy. I think this happy and healthy phrase has become a real meme amongst people who are critical of diet culture without really thinking about what that means. Mm -hmm. What I would say to body positivity is for anyone as long as you're happy and healthy is depressed and disabled people deserve to feel okay about their bodies, right? Fat people and people who are not perceived as being healthy and people who are not perceived as being happy deserve to feel okay about their bodies. The last thing that people who are already being marginalized need is more caveats on what additional steps they have to take to be treated like they deserve to feel okay in the world, right? Yes. So, like, that's the quick one. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like, let's knock that one off because I don't know about you. I am a person who tends toward depression quite a bit. And would love not to be written out of a movement space. (laughs) Pretty fucking simple when you put it like that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the other thing to know is the other thing that feels like kind of a meme is amongst folks who have that entry point of body positivity or anti-diet work or what have you, that there is an eagerness that is part of the galaxy brain thing. It's part Mm -hmm. of the starting to recognize it everywhere to label everything as a facet of diet culture. And what I would say is that if there is a bedrock here, the bedrock is not diet culture. The bedrock is anti-fatness. Diet Mm. culture does not exist without a profound fear of becoming fat, without a profound fear of being treated the way that fat people are treated, and without what social psychologists call social distancing. It's a different kind than the one that we've been talking <laughs> about the for the last couple of years. Kind. <laughs> Not the six feet kind, but the kind that is, again, like going back to this, like, you know, the BMI is wrong because it thinks some thin people are fat stuff, mm-hmm. right? 
that is a critique of sort of like, look at how cockamamie this whole thing is that doesn't actually address that this is a thing that is very specifically on a daily basis restricting life-saving care for fat people. The main problem with the BMI is not that it sometimes thinks thin people are fat. The main problem with the BMI is that trans people who exceed a certain BMI can't get life-saving, gender-affirming care. Mm -hmm. The main problem with the BMI is that because they are concerned with liability, there are surgeons who will not operate on fat people and require them to lose tens or hundreds of pounds before they can access X, Y, or Z surgical procedure that they desperately need. But magically, they absolutely can manage surgery when it's weight loss surgery. Checkmate. Always. Always. No problem there. Yeah. So, like, I think that identifying diet culture is a good thing, right? Like, that's a good thing to be able to do. And it is a pressure that all of us face. What anti-fatness as a lens requires us to do is ask, not only is everybody paying a price, Mm -hmm. but Who's paying the greatest price and what would it look like to make life less punishing Mm -hmm. for the person who's paying the greatest price? And also, not only that, but who profits, right? Yes. Like, both who financially profits, but like, listen, if you're looking at diet culture from a lens of it hurts everyone, which Mm -hmm. sort of implies it hurts everyone equally, right? Right. Right. If you don't say more than that, that's sort of the implication. Yeah. Then you go, oh, these fat cats are getting rich off of our, you know, whatever X and such Weight Watchers or whatever. And you don't go, well, hang on a minute. (laughs) They are putting out a narrative that allows fat people to be seen as failures, but that's being put out so that thin people can see their bodies as accomplishments, right? Mm. So it's not just about what it allows you to believe about other people's inferiority, the perceived inferiority or failures of people who are fatter than you. But it also allows each of us to believe that, like, actually, because I'm not as fat as that fatter person, I did something right. And I should actually help them because Mm. clearly I know how to do something right if it has lent me this body that is so much better than the body that they have. Right. Like, which is a wild thing that I don't think most of us would say out loud. But that is absolutely sort of the underlying logic of, you know, this is a like. Everything looks like a nail when you got a hammer in your hand. If you're only looking for diet culture, you're only going to find diet culture. But if you look a little deeper and you look at sort of who is this designed to hurt and harm? I mean, I think quite a bit of things that we label as diet culture or as food panic is it's like classism and racism in a very thin veil. Right, right. right, right, Some of it is straight up anti-fatness under a very thin veil or no veil at all, right? Mm -hmm. If we want to dismantle these things, if we want to end them, we are going to have to get really precise about what we are personally impacted by and what we are personally not impacted by or what we personally benefit from, right? Mm, We talk a lot, a lot, a lot about diets and how hurtful and harmful they are, including many, many straight-sized people without really reckoning with what that allows them to believe about themselves. Mm -hmm. And that feels like a really important part of the conversation, too. I really appreciate this in the book and the way you're talking about it now, because, you know, I mean, I write about both diet culture and Mm anti-fatness and it can feel murky sometimes. And it's just helpful, like, okay, I have to keep coming back to the the bedrock. And it is useful to unpack things like perfectionism and Mm -hmm. these other concepts that are sort of in the constellation of diet culture. You know, I've been Mm -hmm. thinking a lot about diet culture in the home or, you know, like these sort of other realms. But, We got to keep bringing it back to the bedrock. And like there are a bunch of those things that we consider to be facets of diet culture that are also facets of like perfectionism, one of these hallmark facets of white supremacy culture, right? Like we've got to be able to hold multiple concepts in our head at once and say, yes, I am hurt by this thing. And also other people are hurt in different ways. And way more probably than me, a fairly privileged person. This is the other thing that I would say is tricky about diet culture stuff is that I think sometimes depending on the way we talk about it, often on the internet where everything goes to get flattened and Mm -hmm. robbed of any nuance, Mm -hmm. right, is that we talk about diet culture as being two things. One, the effects on our internal lives, and two, the result of some amorphous culture that exists outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
And not as something that we are interacting with, not mm-hmm. as something that we are reinforcing, not right. as something even that affects other people differently than it affects us. Yes. I think it can be a really tricky thing to figure out how to critique diet culture and only diet culture and still have a conversation about accountability and the mechanics of change. Yes. If you're just saying there's this big, scary, cloudy thing that is called diet culture and mm-hmm. then there's me and I feel really hurt by it. Right, right, right. right. There are like a bunch more steps along the way and we got to be able to chart those steps so that we can take a different path at some point. It's so easy to stay locked in making it a personal project. Yeah. And I mean, again, that's what diet culture taught you to do in the first place, right? Is to treat your body as a personal project that you should always be perfecting and chasing these ideals. But also that keeps you from understanding the larger narrative. You know, you saying that also made me think, "Mm, here's a question I've been getting asked a lot. And I imagine it's a question that you get as well. Okay. Is when did you finally give up and see once and for all, mm. the dieting was not the way and that you could just be a fat person. And my answer to that is always like, there's not a point of arrival because you can't step outside of the culture right. that we're in, right? <laughs> like that's not a, but nope, nope, There's nope, no nope. opting out. But I think that question, as you're talking about like, this is what diet culture taught you to do. I think that is a question about a sense of liberation, mm-hmm. like an internal feeling of liberation that is totally packaged up in a diet culture frame. Yes. Of yes. like, that question is, when did you finally lose the baby weight or yes. whatever? It's the but same question. for anti-fatness. Yeah. Now, that's a real light bulb moment for me. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's people looking for a solution that will fix their own thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which is so understandable because we're all, you know, there there is a lot of pain around all of this, right? Like we are totally struggling to feel like we can put clothes on and exit our houses many days. And that's totally real. But... It keeps the conversation in this personal project space as opposed to this larger space. And then any kind of further conversation again about what would it look like to change it or what does accountability look like or what do you do when you accidentally play back into that thing Mm -hmm. comes back to a sense of you're somehow taking something away from my own personal hurt and harm. Yes. Right. Rather than going, ooh, that's also hurt and harm, and I should figure out how to help that person with theirs, and maybe they can help me with mine, or whatever. Yeah. Right? Like, that. there's got to be some sort of sense of, like, that our own struggles have integrity and are not threatened by acknowledging that other people have different and sometimes bigger or more complex struggles Mm -hmm. than the ones that we have. And that there are more responses to that than just being grateful that that's not you. Yes. Which doesn't yes. help that person like Which at all. Which is actually pretty patronizing. And it's also like a useless question because even if there was that moment of mm-hmm. that's when it all clicked and I opted out and I was free of all of this, like my answer wouldn't help anyone else. It wouldn't apply to anyone else. What works for you isn't going to work for me. That's just another way of, you know, being an influencer or whatever. For sure, for sure. God, I enjoy talking to you so much. It's like been a minute and it's really fun. It's really great. It's good to see you. You too. You too. (laughs) Well, we wrap up the podcast with butter, which is the recommendation segment. Do you have a butter for us today? Listen, the thing that has been my butter most of all is a thing that I would not recommend to people who have children nearby, (laughs) uh, young children in particular, which is I have been really enjoying Nicole Byers stand up. Folks may know Nicole either from her podcasting work or Mm -hmm. from hosting Nailed It. Her stand-up is almost entirely about her own sexuality and sexual Mm -hmm. experiences. And she spends a bunch of time in that stand-up playing with the audience's expectations of what her sexuality ought to be like as a fat person. That's super good. It's great. Again, don't watch it with kids. Um, (laughs) Or do and be ready for some conversations. Sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. The other one that I would say is much more fun and kid adjacent and kid friendly is there is a show that I am an absolute fiend about. I can't stop watching it. It is a show out of the UK called Taskmaster. Have I yelled at you about Taskmaster? Yell at me. Okay. It's wonderful. They're on their 14th season. So it's been around for a minute. Each season, there are five different comedians or performers who compete for the approval of another comedian who goes by the Taskmaster. His name is Greg Davis. And they 
complete these totally meaningless but deeply frustrating tasks, like get all three yoga balls to the top of a hill on a windy day. You have two hands, work it out. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. You're watching people get more and more frustrated about something that they know doesn't matter, but Mm -hmm. they do know it's going to be on television. Mm -hmm. It fits into the category, I would say a similar category to like nailed it, Mm. which is like the like, don't take yourself too personally. (laughs) Like, Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't take any of this too personally kind of genre. And I just really enjoy it. They also will have a task. One of my personal favorites is a task that is make the most exotic sandwich. (laughs) The most exotic sandwich wins. One of the people, Mel Gedroich, who is one of the original co-hosts of Bake Off, makes one that is a full loaf of bread and between each layer is candy bars and marshmallows. Wow. Okay, well, my kids would really love that. So then the next task is eat your exotic sandwich fastest wins. Good luck to you. (laughs) (laughs) So again, just a recipe for frustration Uh, and watching people be thwarted but have a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very fun. And they have fully bleeped versions for any, like if you're nervous about any kind of swear words or any kind of inappropriate whatever, they make a fully bleeped family-friendly version. It doesn't come up very often, but when it does, you might be glad it's there. That sounds excellent. Well, My Butter is also a TV show. I was really laughing when you brought up Nicole Byers because My Butter is like, in many ways, a a different, a different flavor. It is Murder, She Wrote reruns. (gasps) Um, (laughs) It's a little like, (laughs) could not be more wholesome, like opposite of Nicole Byer in many ways. Although, you know, Angela Lansbury seems like she was a great hang. So probably they would be friends. But it was, I think, around the time you did your maintenance phase episode about her diet book, which was mm. delightful. Oh, thank um, you. One of my favorites. I was like, oh, Murder, She Wrote. I used to watch it with my grandma, Betty. And it was like this total, you know, like I, I would like fall asleep because I was like six. And honestly, it's a slow moving show. Yeah. <laughs> the pacing in the 80s versus the pacing today. <laughs> it's very gentle. Very different. Very gentle. But when I'm like between more like, you know, I'm like I'd finished Dairy Girls or I'd finished Bad Girl, Bad Sisters or whatever. And I need yeah. like some other just like I'm working on a puzzle in the evenings and I just need something like super mind erasing. It's also a good one to do a puzzle with because like it's fine if you miss some stuff, but it's just delightful. The reruns are on Amazon Prime. I'll tell you this. I have a Murder, She Wrote super fan in my life who oh, yeah. is somehow miraculously in my age peer group where I'm like, wow, OK, wow, great. That's interesting. Yeah, totally fascinating. <laughs> she watches it every night. And I found there is a cookbook called <gasps> Murder, She Cooked. No, she didn't. That's excellent. That I fully just sent to my friend and apparently is getting good reviews. So heads up. I, I found it while that. I was searching for the Columbo cookbook, which I'm <laughs> eagerly awaiting now. <laughs> I will say there was one episode where she gets like mugged on the streets of New York City. And I was like, this doesn't hold up great on race relations. Like, I don't Yeah, love, correct. Don't love it, Angela. Don't love it. But for the most part, it's so low stakes because it's like yeah. murder in her small main town that like it actually ages fine because it was never anything to begin with. My childhood version of that was Matlock. Okay. Oh, okay. the degree to which I would watch the Matlock. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining it's similar, like a mix of like really weird, like yeah. fully swing and a miss moments and yeah, then a yeah. bunch of stuff that was like, well, this wasn't au courant ever. Right. Like, <laughs> it's never yeah. really made sense. Um, yeah. But also, like, how great that there was a show with a, you know, I don't know how old she was when she made Murder, She Wrote, but she was mm. at least over 25. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, totally. Totally. And she was allowed to be visible. And it was, you know, it was ahead of its time and tiny ways, I would say. And just, like, was, like, the fixer of every murder in... Yeah. The murderiest small town in Maine, Cabot Cove. Cabot Cove. (laughs) Why it keeps happening there. And and I love that the police, like, have so much respect for her. They're like, yes, we do need you to come solve this. Thanks Um, for your help, writer. (laughs) Go back to writing your novels. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh, Aubrey, this was so much fun. Let's make sure we don't forget to tell people where to find you, where to get the book, all that good stuff. Absolutely. I am on Twitter and Instagram at your fat friend, which is YR fat friend. So you can get both of my books wherever you get your books. They are both out now. And you can listen to Maintenance Phase if you want to hear us make fun of very silly diets and debunk them. It's 
I mean, it's delightful. If there's anyone listening to this who's not listening to maintenance phase, you did it in the wrong order and go get caught up. <laughs> no, whatever your entry point is, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Here we go. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Buddy, awesome. it's a dream to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you want to support the show, you can subscribe for free in your podcast player. Definitely tell a friend about this episode and you can leave us a rating or review. That really helps people find the show. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.